This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to John Jers, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 375 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the movies I Kill Giants, A Monster Calls, and Colossal, which each present a personal, metaphorical take on the idea of giant monsters. And this will involve spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So, first up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 13th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in New York City with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. The next up, we've got Seth Dickinson, making his seventh appearance on the show. He's the author of the novels The Traitor Brew Cormorant and The Monster Brew Cormorant, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Beneath Useless Skies, Clark's World, and Tor.com. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And also joining us today is Lisa Yazik, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 346. She's a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech and author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also recently appeared in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Okay, and so as I mentioned today on the show, we'll be talking about these more personal, metaphorical giant monster movies. But first, I'm just curious about what everyone thinks of more traditional giant monster movies such as Godzilla, Cloverfield, and Pacific Rim. So, Lisa, let's start off with you. Are you a fan of those sorts of movies? I am. I love big giant monsters. In fact, I've been uh, in my global science fiction class, I've been using it as an excuse to teach mecha stories. So it's been really fun to look at big giant monsters and big giant robots fighting each other. So, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Even when it totally breaks reality, I'm, I'm good. So what are some examples of some movies that you show in your class? So we do a lot with Japanese anime, and um, we've been doing, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the names of the different ones we've been doing, and of course I'm going to lose them. Uh, Pat Labor, we've done Evangelion, of course everyone loves that one. And then uh, we just did The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which actually doesn't involve any monsters, just time travel, but that one was really fun too. And when you say mecha, could you just explain what you mean by that? Oh, yeah. Mecha, gigantic fighting robots. So for people who've seen Pacific Rim, I think that's the big Hollywood example that we have right now. Mm. What did you think of Pacific Rim? I liked it. I liked it. I'm a fan of the big giant fighting robots, like I said. And it was interesting to me. A lot of people I know didn't like it. I think they were looking for stories about traditional American rugged individual heroes rather than teams of people working together through and with machines. But I, I find that inspiring and just fun to watch all the destruction. Mm. How about Seth? What did you think of these Godzilla, Cloverfield type movies? Uh, so I'm actually a big unfan of Pacific Rim. <laughs> um, I don't like it very much, but I do like the genre. I really liked Shin Godzilla, which I think just means new Godzilla. It was the Japanese um, recent Godzilla reboot directed by Hideako Anno, who I think did Evangelion. Yep. Um and it was such a very, it was not an American movie. There's this guy, he's like a maverick scientist. He predicts disaster when everyone else thinks it's going to be fine. And uh, being an American, I kind of expected him to go off in his own and save the day. But um, the way this movie approaches it is they give him his own office and his own team. 
Uh, and it's very much a movie about like disaster response and how communities right. and bureaucracies especially face disaster. It's also gorgeous. Like you just don't see shot composition like that in Hollywood cinematography, even from like Guillermo del Toro, who's an amazing director. I really recommend Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Loved I mean, it. personally, I found Pacific Rim, I found the characters sort of bland and forgettable. Um, I thought that got the recent, I watched the recent Godzilla one. Uh, not the most recent one, but the one before that, which I thought was a, you know, uh, I got my money's worth, but I, it, I didn't really stick in my mind. And then Cloverfields, I, I actually really liked, but I felt like it was sort of a, um, a very enjoyable, uh, amusement park ride. And again, the characters didn't really, didn't really stick with me that much. Um, Seth, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of feelings about Cloverfield. Uh, sorry about, um, Pacific Rim and, and Cloverfield, uh, you know, kind of, I think you have to look at Cloverfield in the context of found footage movies too. And it is a spectacular example of those. I love Cloverfield. The, uh, recent sequel. I don't know what they were thinking turning it into a franchise with thinly connected movies. I think, um, the way the name has been used is they put it on unrelated horror movies to give them a marketing boost. And one of those is really good. The, um, 10 Cloverfield Lane with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. But the recent Cloverfield paradox was terrible. Yeah. Huge disappointment. That's what I heard. I didn't. I didn't see it. How about Sarah? What do you think of these these kinds of movies? Um, I usually enjoy them for you know sort of what they are. Like they end up being popcorn flicks, and you know I think how you describe them, uh, Dave, is 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 pretty on point. Just in terms of you know they're sort of they tend to be movies you watch once and you enjoy them and you appreciate that you were entertained, but. You know, they they're very rarely more much more beyond that. Right. Yeah. I think, like like I said, you know, my my problem with a lot of these movies, and I do, for the most part, enjoy the giant monster action, but um, there seems to be sort of a disconnect between you know, it's hard to make the audience, or at least it's hard to make me care about the human characters when they're set against such giant monsters, and there's there's a compendium of wit and wisdom. Um, for science fiction writers called the Turkey City Lexicon. And it has an entry called Squid on the Mantelpiece. And I'll just read what it says, because I think this is really good. It says, Chekhov said that if there are dueling pistols over the mantelpiece in the first act, they should be fired in the third. In other words, a plot element should be deployed in a timely fashion and with proper proper dramatic emphasis. However, in SF plotting, the MacGuffins are often so overwhelming that they cause conventional plot structures to collapse. It's hard to properly dramatize, say, the domestic effects of Dad's bank overdraft when a giant writhing kraken is leveling the city. This mismatch between the conventional dramatic proprieties and SF such extreme, grotesque, or visionary thematics is known as the squid on the mantelpiece. And yeah, I think that's an issue for me with a lot of these movies is that often there's this sort of the, the B character plot where there's a parent and child and they are squabbling. And then in the course of the gigantic monster disaster, then they you know realize that they actually love each other at the end. And you're supposed to leave the movie feeling good. But I'm kind of like, yeah, but like a million people died in the course of this movie. Like, who cares about this family, <laughs> right? Right. Um, well, wasn't it? It's you now Pamela Sargent. She's a science fiction writer and anthologist, and she once said science fiction is a literature of ideas and not a literature of character, right? And it seems like that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? Is that these, the especially the big budget Hollywood movies, they really, maybe they're not about ideas, but they're certainly the spectacle of destruction, right? Maybe Susan Sontag is who I should be invoking here. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just don't care that they're not about people, but maybe I don't care about Hollywood people. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm sort of in it. And also, I see these movies at the drive-in, so 
you know, I think that puts you maybe in a different head because like, I'm, you don't need deep character development when you're sitting outside with a beer and watching a film. <laughs> well, well, yeah, for, for me, there's, there's a whole class of movies, which I think should really just be 90 minute long special effects reels, you know, that, that mm-hmm. the, the characterization is just detracts from what I really want to see, which is the giant monsters smashing buildings and stuff like that. Right. And um, I feel like so many of these movies are dragged down by poorly done characters. You know, it would be great to have sure. well done characters, but uh, I would rather have no characters than poorly done characters. I think a lot of these movies, the characters are the monsters. Like when you think about Cloverfield versus Godzilla, um, those are very different people. Like they're giant monsters destroying the city. But from the way they're rendered, the way they move, the things they do, um, you get a really different idea of what they're about. And like Godzilla's an icon. King Kong's an icon. Uh, not just because of what they do, but because of how we think about what they want. Like we think of Godzilla as kind of punishing mankind's sins, but also protecting us. And King Kong, um, you know, is kind of a, a child, almost a victim. We brought him from his habitat and he's pretty mad about it, but ultimately he's at our mercy, not the other way around. Um, to me, that's, that's the character heart of giant monster movies, the monster itself. Yeah, I think it's most successful when when they do that. I mean, you know, the simplicity of King Kong, for instance, is still such a pleasure to watch, uh, despite being black and white. And, and you know, despite obviously there being so many more uh, movies that, that came after that that tried to do the same thing. The original is so much more successful than a lot of what what tried to repeat it, in part because it's its charm is in its simplicity and in the fact that, you know, you sort of are rooting for King Kong just as much you as you are, you know, sort of hoping that, you know, everybody doesn't get killed. So. Right. And I want to say, I mean, when I, I first I was, um, you know, proposing or sort of batting around the idea for this panel on Facebook. And one of my friends said, you know, I said, I want to talk about metaphorical monster movies as opposed to literal monster movies like Godzilla. And he says, well, no, but Godzilla is a metaphor for uh, like the atomic bomb. Right. Which yeah. is obviously true. Right. I mean, it's sort of, you know, a common observation that um, in American popular culture, post-World War II, uh, atomic power creates superheroes. And in Japanese culture, it creates monsters that, that destroy cities, right? And there's really obvious reasons for that. Um, yeah. But I feel like, you know, what I what I want to talk about on this panel, so, so there are obviously like many or most maybe um, giant monster movies, the monster is a metaphor for something, but that within the reality of the story, that in Godzilla you know, it's treated as a realistic monster in the sense that, you know, uh, you need an, ar- an army to fight it. You know, you can't, you know, you can't defeat it by, um, you know, coming to grips with something inside yourself or something like that. Right. And well, I thought very it was literal, right. It's really literal. <laughs> it literally instantiates all the dangers of nuclear war. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and but I thought it was interesting that there was these three movies that I, that I came across that I know of, where they take this trope, it's sort of like the next to my mind. That's kind of kind of the next. You know, we 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 all kind of know the the giant monster trope, and now it's like, okay, well, what else can you do? It what new, what new spin can you put on it? And so these these three movies that um you know that we all watched, uh, I Kill Giants, Monster Calls, and Colossal, they sort of take that idea, but they make it very personal, and there's some sort of personal connection between the um you know the the protagonist and the giant monster. And I feel like maybe that in, in some way that presents a solution to this problem um, that the Turkey City lexicon was, was outlining of like, 
you know, does the monster just overwhelm the whole story? And maybe that doesn't happen if it's so overtly metaphorical and so overtly personal. Um, but so, yeah. Seth, Seth, what do you think about that? I think all three of these movies are really careful uh, not to let the monster um, overwhelm that angle. Like in two of them, in Monster Calls and I Kill Giants, nobody except the the core protagonist is allowed to believe the monster's real. Um, which I think both of them leave a little ambiguity uh, about whether you're supposed to take away the external existence of this monster. But they're both really easily read as like purely psychological, realistic stories. Um, Colossal isn't quite so restrained, but even so, uh, like Colossal has this twist where the two battling monsters are embodied by the characters. Um, they don't exist without the two protagonists in conflict, you know. Um, uh, God, Anne Hathaway and her... Jason Sudeikis? Is that yes, yes, Jason Sudeikis. Um, they're really, all of them are very careful. All three of these movies are very meticulous about positioning the monsters as, whether they physically exist or not, um, avatars of a conflict between the characters or something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, But I, I want to say in defense of like other monster movies that uh, a lot of their best moments too come from twinning what's going on with the monster and what's going on with the protagonist. I think even the Godzilla you saw, the um, Gareth Edwards Godzilla from a couple of years ago, uh, nobody would say that movie is a great protagonist. He's really boring. Uh, but probably his best scenes are when he and Godzilla are both fighting in the same city. And, you know, they're both kind of at their end. And you can feel this connection between them where you know their fates are intertwined, even though it's not like our hero is physically piloting Godzilla like a an Evangelion or something. <laughs> but there's still that link there. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, sir, what did you think just overall of these three movies when I, you know, had you watch them? Do you Did you feel like this is kind of an interesting break from the past of giant monster movies or, or not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, you know, in, in some ways, it, it's sort of the marriage of what's good about monster movies um, instead of, you know, sort of trying to make it like, uh, you know, that this bad character that's actually misunderstood and is a gentle giant or something like that, just taking that whole structure away and still having the the drama and the tension underneath, but making it much more, uh, you know, obviously of a metaphor of, of real things that people are going through, cancer and death and so on. So I, I think that they were all very touching. Mm-hmm. Had you heard of any of these movies, Sarah, before I... Uh, emailed you about it? I had heard of a monster calls and I remember stuff going by on it on Twitter and it was kind of on the proverbial list. And because there's so many shows and movies these days that, that it got bumped perpetually until I pretty much forgot about it. And then of course, you know, you stop seeing it around in the culture and you stop seeing it on Twitter. And so it sort of drops off indefinitely. And of course you're here to bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was delighted actually with the, uh, that's right. With all of them, they were, they were all very touching in very different ways. So, uh, how about Lisa? Had you how much familiarity did you have with these movies going into this panel? Yeah, I'd heard of all three of them, and I'd seen Colossal already, which I, I I'd enjoyed. I hadn't seen the other two. I'm I'm you know more of a science fiction person than a fantasy person, and uh, but then you know it was it was good to loop back to them, and yeah, I was impressed with how deftly they handled the subject, and I think it's really interesting. I had. Um, went back and I was looking really quickly at the history of monster movies and all the early ones really are these, 
you know, expressions of fears about very literal things and ways we're changing the earth, like right monsters produced by atomic energy. And then in the seventies, monsters produced by ecological disaster. And then you have the swing in the eighties and nineties to the whole friendly giant thing, like with, with the iron giant and, oh gosh, the movie that Andre the giant is in. Is that Princess Bride? I think. Yeah. Princess, um, he is right? Princess Bride. Yeah. And so, you know, it's no surprise to me that after you've gone from one extreme to the other, you have to go to the weird and the psychological and the internal. And, and I thought that they, these all three of them did a, a really nice job with that, with, uh, using these, this imagery to just, you know, right. Giants are usually about disasters and physical landscapes. These were really great explorations of dr- traumatic changes in, uh, emotional and domestic landscapes. I thought. Right. And, and since you mentioned Iron Giant, I mean, I love that movie. I think it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I feel like that movie takes, it's about as good a movie as you can do about like a kid who becomes friends with a giant robot, you know, <laughs> and, and not making it metaphorical, really, or um, right. psychological, but just treating yeah. that literally. Yeah. And that uh, particularly um, A Monster Calls is, is almost like the Iron Giant made, you know, rendered yeah. psychological. Yeah, yeah. While we're talking about uh, psychology of giant monsters, I just wanted to throw in that Cloverfield, um, you know, almost belongs to this category, too, in that it's so much about 9-11 and the post-9-11 trauma. Uh, like the characters aren't the, the purpose of the monster in that movie is just to put the characters into this single nightmare situation in New York where they're trying to get in touch with their loved ones and trying to survive, but they don't understand anything that's going on. Um, and there's even a little of the post nine 11 reaction in there with the military coming in and bombing the city. And, uh, sorry if you guys, I guess we didn't warn for spoilers on Cloverfield. Consider yourself warned now. <laughs> you know, the military ultimately bombing them and killing them. Um, that whole movie's really very like Bush era. Uh, so to me, the sick mother of Cloverfield is the, the 9 situation. <laughs> well, well, right. So let's get into these, these movies, uh, uh in, in case anyone hasn't seen them. So let's start. I was going to start off with I Kill Giants. So, so I Kill Giants, it's about this, um, girl she's i think she's 10 or so and she uh is an outsider and she dresses in sort of unusual clothes and has sort of like stuffed animal bunny ears that she wears and um he was really into dungeons and dragons and uh sort of talks and is not you know tells people that she's defending the city from these giant which calls giants um using all sorts of traps and magical spells and she has this magical warhammer that she believes she keeps in this pouch around her neck. Uh, and as, as Seth was saying, nobody, nobody else believes her. Uh, nobody else apparently can see any of these, um, you know, supernatural manifestations that she, uh, that she, she that she can see. Um, and so I, you know, I, I read an interview with the director who said that test audiences had a lot of difficulty with this main character that they didn't, that they found her unsympathetic. Uh, I actually really liked her a lot. Um, she's very snarky um, and misunderstood, but um, I thought we would start there. So, Sarah, what did you think of the uh, the protagonist in I Kill Giants? Did you find her uh, relatable or sympathetic? Yeah, in fact, I you know I thought that she's one of the most relatable characters like that that I've ever seen in these kinds of movies because you know you often see sort of this sort of nerdy geeky girl and it's played by some gorgeous actress and they've given her like a pair of glasses <laughs> <laughs> and you know and they sort of 
I guess they sort of, you know, told her to drop her shoulders a little bit and look a little bit. But it's like, come on, that's not how society would respond. Um, You know, in high school in in particular, you know, that kind of environment would actually respond to an Emma Watson, for instance. Um, And so, you know, for me, the idea of having this character who's sort of could be on the spectrum, could be schizophrenic, could be all kinds of bizarre things that are going through your head while you're watching this, you know, character interact where she genuinely has issues and you don't really see that you see us pretending you know the audience pretending like the character is unlikable right but it's very brave to actually genuinely make her a little bit unlikable because then you're like oh well i can kind of see where people are coming from here um so i thought that was a really you know bold choice and and i think it's a good thing that you know that people are saying that she was a little bit unlikable I mean, one thing that I didn't actually honestly notice this watching the movie, but a review pointed it out. But basically every character in this movie is female. Um, she has a brother who has a few lines. And I think there's a male principal who has a few lines. But aside from that, every character, every, you know, significant character in the movie is female. Is that something? Did you notice that, Sarah, while you were watching it? Absolutely. And I loved it. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. You know, sort of the main the main thing that happens with a man is, you know, that the, the, the brother is sort of playing video games and is being super dismissive and violent. And, you know, then there's all this world of, of, of women and, and, and ma- making choices and, and how they interact with each other. And it's it was really charming. What did you think of so so the main character Barbara is being bullied by this this bully in her class or in her school Taylor what did you think of that character I thought she was very realistic uh you know in terms of of how bullies behave and and especially how female bullies behave which is a little bit different and meaner <laughs> and less physical I mean you know they they certainly get into some physical altercations but for the most part you know there's sort of this sense of well, I know your mom's sick and I don't care. And, you know, that sense of cattiness uh, that happens, you know, sometimes in those kinds of environments. So I thought it was very successful. Mm-hmm. How about Lisa? What did you think of the bullying? Yeah, I everything Sarah said, um, I, I agree. It felt really, it made a lot of sense. And especially, right, the way that she goes after the best friend or the, the new friend, at least, and tries to split up what, little bit of community that our lead character has created for herself with, with her friend. Um, that felt right. Yeah, absolutely on, on target. Um, and then when the tables were turned at the end, and again, I know we're doing spoilers here. Um, that was actually the one moment that, that felt slightly less plausible. Of course, it was wonderful to see the, the bully get taken down. Um, I, I, I just don't know though, if, if I felt like the school would have really reacted that way, given how thoroughly it's been made clear that our, our heroine Barbara is, is kind of unlikable and strange. I'm, I'm not sure that when she tricks Taylor, everyone would think that was hilarious. Could you, why don't you, just for people who haven't seen the movie, could you say what, when you, right. what do you mean by the tables? Are right. So, um, right. Taylor is bullying and bullying our, our heroine Barbara. And at the end, Barbara has, or towards the end, Barbara has a moment when she can get the upper hand and make a fool out of Taylor in front of everyone. And it feels really narratively satisfying. And it certainly makes sense in terms of, Barbara, but I, I don't. I just felt like the school's reaction to it. I don't know. Was a little pat. I'm not sure why. It, it broke some of the very carefully built reality for me. But otherwise, yeah. I guess I we liked should... it. Oh, yeah. Ahead, I, I thought um, one of the reasons that worked for me is that the actress playing the bully brought a lot to it. There were probably a lot of different ways to play that role in the script. Not many of them 
even two dimensional, like most of them right. very flat. Right. But, uh, she did add this little sense of like, I got the sense she herself, the bully, was in a pretty shitty place in the school, was maybe not quite the queen bee mean girl, um, and was maybe just a couple rungs above our hapless protagonist in the power structure. So I did believe that other people would turn on her the way that she was, um, I got the sense that she felt her own power was really tenuous and precarious, and that's part of why she was so vicious. Okay. But I don't know if I'm just reading too much into the <laughs> actress's choices. Yeah, well, let me just set up a little bit more about what's going on in the story because we've we've jumped we've jumped ahead a little bit. So, um, so so Barbara, this this sort of misfit character, um, lives with her brother and her older sister, and the older sis- sister seems to be taking care of the younger siblings. And we have the impression that the parents are dead. Uh, that was the impression I think that we're meant to have, or yeah. are out yeah. of the picture for some, s- somehow. Um, and then Barbara is also confronted by these things she calls harbingers, which are these sort of like I don't know, like out of focus grim reaper kind of monsters that tell her that she's not good enough and she's never going to be able to defeat the giants and things like that. And, um, and as the story progresses, oh, and we also, we see that there's something upstairs that, uh, that she's afraid of, or there's some sort of haunting going on upstairs. And she sees these, um, dark tentacles kind of reaching down the stairs for her and calling her name. And so, uh, again, spoiler warning at the end of the movie, it turns out that she, uh, that her mother is, is not dead, but is terminally ill. And um, and the giants are sort of a manifestation of her fears around her mother's mortality. Um, so, Seth, what did you think of that? Did you see that coming? And what did you think of it when it happened? Yeah, I saw it coming. I was really, really uh, braced for it to be bad. Um, but I think the movie sold it pretty well. Um, both as a twist in that you get a lot of hints that there's something upstairs that uh, Barbara... Did I get that right, Barbara? Barbara, yeah. really is really afraid of. Um, but also Jennifer L, who I think L or air who plays the mother, uh, is just one of my favorite character actresses and her 20 seconds of screen time. Absolutely destroyed me. She was so good. Yeah. Did you watch this stuff before or after a monster calls? Uh, I watched it right before a monster calls. Okay. Cause I feel like the ending to this might be easier to predict, <laughs> uh, coming <laughs> off of a monster calls and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so how about, um, so Sarah, what'd you think of the, of that twist, um, at the end of I Kill Giants? Um, I thought that it sort of, I had a hard time with, you know, understanding why nobody talks to the kid, <laughs> you know, because there would, I feel like, you know, you always sort of in movies like this where you're like, why is nobody just talking about the elephant in the room? Like th- this is a kid. And if, if you know that a kid is acting out and being angry and being a little weird, and you know that her mother is terminally ill, that probably has something to do with it. And so nobody kind of sat her down. And then I thought, well, maybe they had those conversations in the beginning and people, you know, I, I forget that people are not uh, wholly emotionally intelligent. You know, it, it's, it's sort of one of those things where you go around in life and I was homeschooled and, you know, I've always been very introverted. And so I look at scenarios and I'm like, 
why are people so unemotionally intelligent? And then I look at the world and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> they, they really are. They're, they're, it is really more rare than I, than I remember. Um, so it might've been that they had those discussions at the beginning when the mother fell ill, but then, you know, as people kind of go into the routine and, you know, sometimes cancer drags on forever, uh, people forget like, Hey, you know, this kid is still going through this. Uh, so I'm, I'm willing to sort of forgive them, uh, for that, but it's, it's kind of one of those things that made it possible that made the story possible is the fact that none of the adults seem to say to her, Hey, I know your mom is dying and this might be related, <laughs> you know, how you're behaving and stuff like that might be related to that. You would think that somebody would bring it up at some point. Um, but you know, it, it, it people wasn't do. plausible overall, I think. I think people do try to bring it up, um, but she rejects it so violently. Like her entire second life with these giants is so tied up with her mother's illness that uh, when her friend Sophia tries to like even say the words your mother, yeah. it's like deadened out on the, the dialogue track yeah. uh, as if Barbara physically cannot hear the words. Mm. Um and I don't know if it's that she's maybe autistic and gets overstimulated really easily, but she clearly, um, when people push her, push her emotional space, she withdraws into really vivid, um, imagined and often really negative imagery. So I expect by the point the movie picks up, everybody who already knows about her mom has learned that Barbara will go catatonic if you yeah. try to bring the topic up with her and yeah, I buy that. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, I, 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 I had the same trouble Sarah had and, and I see Seth, what you're saying. And I, I kind of buy it, but I got to tell you as the mother of a 10 year old boy in public school, I, it's really hard for me to suspend my disbelief because I know what the infrastructure is there. And I just don't believe that a kid would fall through the cracks quite like that. But Having said that, you know, this movie is very much from Barbara's perspective. And if she doesn't hear people approaching her, then maybe it just doesn't register on her landscape, right? Hmm. I mean, I, I read a really interesting – there's an interesting article online, and the headline is something like, uh, a movie critic who hated a movie meets the director whose movie he hated or something like that. <laughs> and it's this movie. And and overall, I, I really enjoyed this movie for the most part. Um, but I thought that the the part I had the most trouble with was that after – Barbara sort of comes to terms with everything at the end. There's this coda where she's now she's dressing in normal clothes and seems happy and well-adjusted. And, um, and it just seems very sort of like abrupt and, you know, not in keeping with the rest of the movie. And, you know, I had liked who she was and now it seems like she's kind of turned into a different person. And this reviewer was sort of saying that, you know, he watched this movie while his, I think it was his father was, dying of cancer or maybe had recently died of cancer and that he sort of resented how uh, the struggle that he was had, had never really come to terms with or was still struggling to come to terms with uh, that, that pro that the protagonist in the movie went through that process of healing in like two minutes uh, of screen yeah. time. Um, and I, I thought that that was a pretty legitimate uh, criticism of this movie. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I, I found the protagonist really, um, you know, unsympathetic, like a lot of people did as I started watching. And I think part of that was because I recognized um, in her, uh, you know, it's not, she's not just one of the kids from Stranger Things where they're clearly really likable. 
nobody likes them, but they like each other. They stick together. They play D and D, and they're very positive. She's she does a lot of things to keep other people away, and some things that are clearly negative that you want to like. You wish she would stop, and I think part of the reason I found her unsympathetic at first and really grew to like her was that, you know, I did some of those same things myself as a child and recognizing them is, is hard. Like seeing the ways that people, um, learn behaviors that make things worse for them or at least don't help. So I think the criticism that, you know, she wouldn't have unlearned all this in two minutes is a pretty accurate one. It's sad to say, but like, I feel like she would have walked away from this with a lot more lasting damage. Um, Hopefully, you know, on an upward trajectory, but. Well, well, so, so Lisa, you mentioned that you have a child who's mm-hmm. basically this age. And yeah. one of my reactions to this movie too was that I, I felt like it, it felt like it was set. I don't know. I felt like it was supposed to be set in the present, but to me, it felt more like the seventies or the eighties or something in terms of how the, yeah, like you said, how the school, the dynamics of the school and how this girl is just allowed to roam all over the neighborhood and hang out in the abandoned train yard and nobody seems to care where, you know, the police aren't looking for her, like, right. uh, you know, truancy and all that kind of stuff. Did, did you yeah. have that sort of, same sort of reaction? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there, it, it's in no ways matches like the kind of middle class lifestyle that my 10 year old is experiencing. Having said that, you know, there, there are kids who are going home after school and still running around. So I do recognize that's kind of diverse. I guess I didn't worry about it too much, or I tried to put it aside just because, right, this is a movie that operates in a sort of fantastic and almost mythic mode so often. Um, but yeah, it didn't, I mean, it certainly didn't feel like, oh, I recognize this as anything like the life my son leads or anything. Um, but, but once I said, okay, this is just operating in this American fantastic, it, it becomes a little easier to deal with some of that. And I even felt that way about the emotional change at the end. I mean, there's no way in which that felt plausible, right? I, I agree with Seth and Sarah. You don't walk out of that situation without some change to you. Um, and, and, and some, some time it to, you know, takes time to get over that. But, um, I think once I sort of accept that maybe there are giants in this world, I could accept some other things. Well, actually, on, on that point, I mean, Seth was saying that the movie leaves it ambiguous whether the giants I agree. are real or not. I thought yeah. it, um, the only thing that makes me, think that giants are definitely real is the fact that there was this freak storm that happens to coincide with her emotional climax slash epiphany. It's just very hard for me to buy that as a random coincidence in a world in which nothing supernatural is happening. There might be one footprint. You can read that as Sophia buying into the fantasy, but I thought I saw a footprint that she kind of paused and stared at. I saw that too. And actually every time Barbara encounters the giants, there's a natural disturbance beforehand. Like the birds start flocking differently or moving and the trees move differently. So, you know, if you want to read that as a sign that the giants are making some mark on the universe. Um, But again, right. It could also just be how Barbara sees the world. Tough to say. I don't know. I sort of saw it though. I'm with you. I feel like at the end, maybe they could be real and maybe they just are attracted to emotional distress. Right. Sarah, what do you think? I think that, you know, all of these movies, uh, you know, the, with the exception probably of Colossal, try to sort of make it, you know, teetering on the edge of ambiguousness yeah. for, you know, on purpose. And that's probably the best place for it to be given the style. Um, but I also think that, you know, in, in regards to the vintage feel, I think a lot of these filmmakers are 
recreating what childhood felt like to them. And, and you know, as a child of the 80s, I appreciate that, you know, and, and some of them are doing it very literally, like in Stranger Things, where it's, it's just nostalgia porn, and I am here for it, like all of it. Um, but, you know, in many, many ways, it's much more subtle. Um, but I, I, I think it's actually sort of part of the charm for me, um, because it, it feels like what childhood felt like in the 80s, you know, so it, it's, uh, to me, it's a successful decision. Mm. Right, let's, let's, let's talk about a monster call. So these are actually like weirdly similar stories. Um, I think they were, you know, uh, examples of convergent evolution or something. You know, I think the creators came up with them separately. But so, so in a monster calls, again, we have a protagonist who I think is about 10 years old and, um, his mother is again, terminally ill with cancer. Uh, this time, this movie doesn't make that the twist. You know that right off, right, you know, right from the beginning. And so, so it's more, you know, overtly about how is he uh, grappling with that. And so in this one, he, he's a very uh, imaginative boy and he sort of imagines that there's this, this yew tree that he can see from his bedroom window. And he imagines that, it, or, or he imagines, or it, it's really happening, who knows, that it, that it turns into a, a giant tree man who comes to his window and says, I'm going to tell you three stories and then you're going to tell me a story. Um, and that's kind of the, the structure of the movie. Um, so how about Seth? What did you think of, uh, what'd you think of that basic uh, story structure? Yeah, it's funny that the two movies kind of have this deep impact to Armageddon relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find it a little simple, but also I think these are movies for kids. Um, so I, I can't hold that against them. One thing I really liked uh, about A Monster Calls compared to I Kill Giants is that the giant has a lot more personality and a lot more screen time and is voiced by Liam Neeson really, really well. Yeah. Um, he's not directly sympathetic. Um, he's got kind of this tough love approach, which <laughs> I found really effective. Um, I haven't actually... So he tells these three stories to the the kid as... Um, I think ways to help him through different stages of, of grief, but I haven't parsed those stories for a lot of deep, like symbolic meaning, except for the part where he destroys everything and therefore teaches our child protagonist how great it is to smash stuff when you're angry. <laughs> I don't know. Did you guys detect any, uh, like, I think the first story is about a, a prince, a farm girl and a witch the second story is about uh, medicine and a healer and a priest who who wants will give up anything to have his daughters saved. Um, and I don't remember the third one off the top of my head. Did you guys it's connect a, to all of those? Somebody was invisible and wanted to be seen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, Seth. I thought all the stories were supposed to be uh, maybe not lessons. I don't know if they were lessons or parables, but yeah, they definitely mapped to what was happening, I thought, in his life. Because that first one right, is about the prince, the witch, and the princess. And that's right when he is sort of shifting over to living with his grandmother or or having to engage her more, right? Um, And then the second story, I'm trying to remember now, but I remember at the time thinking, yeah, this all maps. Wasn't the point of the second story, basically, you can never tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Yes, and also that healing is a matter of belief. And that that's something he has to figure out with both his mom and his dad, right? Or his grandma, and, and his dad, because at first dad seems like a great guy. And it turns out dad's 
kind of flawed, right? That he's sympathetic to his son, but not willing to really become more physically or emotionally involved in his life. Dad is there, uh, I guess, divorced and living with a different family by this point in California. But then dad also gives him good advice. So he becomes a very complicated character. And I thought the point of that story was people are complicated. Hmm. Uh, Sarah, what did you think of this? What did you think of the stories within a story? Uh, well, it's one of those movies that, you know, it's just sad. <laughs> like, and, and I, I appreciate that. It's just, it's something that's, I think actually I probably saw the trailer and I, it's one of those trailers where you feel like you watch the whole movie. <laughs> and I remember now that I've watched it, like, oh, okay. Yeah. I remember watching the trailer and thinking, well, that looks sad. And it was, and it, but it was also really successfully, you know, it was a very simple story. Um, there wasn't even that much, you know, overall dialogue. A lot was told with shots. You know, a lot was, there was just sort of, there would be a shot just of the inside of a, of a pencil sharpener that was really beautiful. And all of that aided the, uh, the, the feel of the character so much. And I really feel like, you know, what, part of what made it successful is that each of the characters was very real. Um, and very complex. And you have the grandmother who in the beginning, you feel like she's, you know, rather stoic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she's not, she doesn't seem like a really great grandmother in terms of, you know, hey, you have to be warm with children, especially children whose mothers are dying. Um, but then, you know, when, when the kid smashes up all of her priceless heirlooms, she understands that you know punishing the kid is not going to help anyone and she's just gonna you know sort of grieve privately um and then the kid understands in turn oh you know what have i done I, and you know i get it she's losing her child too just as i'm losing my mother um and so it's it's kind of interesting that all of that is ultimately told without telling it directly and i think that even though it's a very simple story um that it's it's simple in, in the most successful sense. And if I was, you know, if, if, if my nephew or something had, uh, was losing someone to cancer or some other thing, any child was losing a parent, that would be one of the first movies that I would want them to watch. Right. I, I agree with you that both these movies are very sad. I mean, I totally cried at the ending of both these yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like, you know, Seth was saying that these are kids movies. I'm not sure. No, if I agree with that. and I'm not actually sure like who they're for necessarily, because even though I think they're both really good, because I feel like they're not for kids in the sense that I don't think most kids can really relate to that sort of grief or, you know, like um, I could be wrong. But then I also feel like most adults don't necessarily want to watch a, a cancer movie about a talking tree, you know, so it's, it's sort of like I, I kind of felt like this was sort of a movie that. You know, a filmmaker would make it because he thinks that it's an important story to tell. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure, like, that it would really connect with that large of an audience. And I, I think that might be, you know, I guess I'll just, I'll just note that all of these movies were pretty much total box office bombs. Um, all, although they were all, I think they're all quite good and were all, um, pretty, pretty well reviewed. Um, so let's, let's come to that question. Uh, Lisa, what do you, who do you think? Is the audience, if if anyone, if anyone, I, for I have cars. no darn idea, and I wanted to ask all of you that same question because I can tell you, it's I'm fairly sure it's not my ten year old. I can say that, um, and and it wasn't me either. Um, I, I I have to admit, I had known about both of these movies, and I had purposely avoided them um, in large part 
because as as a, as a mother of a 10 year old kid, like I kind of just don't need to watch movies about moms dying. And then also as a feminist, I got to say, we tell a lot of stories about dead women in, in our culture. And there was an Edgar Allan Poe who once said the most poetic topic is a dead woman's body. And I, I just can't do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a hard time. Having said that, I do think both of these movies were really beautiful and I'm actually glad I saw them. I cried buckets. They were insane. Yes. I, I would, but I would never show it to my son. I don't think, and I'm not sure who the, who they go to. Um, I think one thing that was cool, right, is that in a world where we have a lot of really big problems that are very obvious that we all talk about, like global warming or um, the shifting governments and there are shifting priorities across the globe, that sometimes we forget about issues of personal loss. And I do think these movies remind us how important um, the, the personal is and our, and our interiors and our psyches and how much we need to care for ourselves and each other as much as we need to care about those big issues. But I still don't know who needs to see this movie. I don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the the sad dog movie, which is like a whole genre. <laughs> and as a dog person, I avoid those movies like The Plague. And I'm like, is there some Venn diagram somewhere of people who are dog people and people <laughs> who actually just want to cry about dogs all the time? Like, I don't. I don't want to do it. Like, I'm, right. you know, I'm but, still crying yeah. every other month over my dog that died two years ago. I don't need any help in that department. So, but isn't there's a tradition of movies, right? They used to call them weepies. So clearly there's some group of people who really enjoy the emotional catharsis of these movies, but maybe not with metaphorical and literal giants. I, I well, yeah, I, I feel like it might be, you know, like the traditional weepies were probably not that expensive to make, but, you know, right. these movies have like $15 million budgets and it just might, there might not be enough people who want to go see a movie and cry to sustain, you know, a $15 million movie like this. Right. Although I will say every time I accidentally use the wrong contact solution, I'm really <laughs> grateful that I have the first 20 minutes of up because I do not want to wash my eyes with saline. I find it hurts. <laughs> but if I watch the first 20 minutes of up after putting the wrong thing in my eye, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, Seth, what do you think about this question of who who are these movies for? I really like sad movies. Um, and, you know, if you look at movies that are definitely for kids, like, I mean, even like The Lion King, a lot of them deal with tremendously powerful grief in a symbolic way, you know, not in a um, cinematic, realistic way like these movies do. But I... I think these are probably for older kids or younger teenagers. That's who I would think they were for. But maybe I am too cruel to to children. I'm not, I'm, I'm th- well. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. like you're talking about like Bambi and stuff, right? Um, yeah, or, I, I or feel the like or the time or the Lion King. But I feel like the parents die like one third to halfway through those movies, and then that's not really the focus of the rest of the movie. Whereas that's pretty much the sole focus of these movies or like the primary focus of these movies. Well, parents dying in Disney films is pretty much 90% of Disney films. <laughs> yeah. But I think in part that's because when you are a child, your biggest fear is something happening to your parents. Like that is every child's worst fear unless your, your parents are, are nightmares. So. You I, know, just, I just feel like, I feel like if I were, you know, when I were a kid, you know, if I hadn't experienced any grief, like I would watch this, these movies and be like, oh, the monster was cool. I like the part where he trashed the cafeteria. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't feel like it would have had 
that sort of impact on me? Well, kids have a lot of, I mean, a lot of kids have empathy. <laughs> I mean, I would have cried as a child when I watched this because I remember crying at like, you know, Cinderella and, you know, whatever, The Lion King, the the original one that came out, you know, and I think I was like a, almost a teenager when that one came out. So, and I hadn't experienced any grief yet, but, you know, kids have empathy. That's a thing. Maybe not for David. (laughs) I think maybe the empathy isn't so much the issue. And again, I can only speak out of the one small 10-year-old I own and operate, but um, maybe some of his friends too. Um, But I think the problem is it gets too much into the interior and the psychological. And and especially for a a younger kid, and especially a 10-year-old boy, like you're down for the monster fights and, and maybe even for some of the school drama, but... But all the talking, I could just, I, I was telling my son about the movies. I'm like, do you want to watch them with me? And he's like, do they talk about their issues? And I'm like, well, <laughs> they kind of avoid them. But he's like, is there a lot of talking? And I'm like, well, but you know, I mean, he was out by the time I could come up with an answer. <laughs> so I think it might be too deep. And maybe Seth is right that this is maybe more for older kids, like uh, tweens and, and teenagers. Well, Seth, you said that you, you like to cry at movies, but you hadn't watched either of these movies, right? Had you, why did you, why did you not watch these movies? I hadn't heard of them. I did not know they existed until you asked me to do this panel. And I love Colossal, so, um, but I think that was probably covered and marketed uh, more in my direction. But so if you had seen the trailer for Monster Calls, you would have watched it? I don't think so. Um, (laughs) I don't think enough would have come through. I think I would have assumed it was a movie kind of like um, Inkheart or Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Mm -hmm. where, I don't know, I don't think I would have expected that much uh, emotional processing, emotional gristle there to chew on. Yeah, well, like the the trailer for I Kill Giants doesn't give you any idea that it's a sad movie from what I remember. Um, And Mm. and nevertheless, you know, they weren't able to trick people into seeing it. And but I I feel like we may have like a, um, you know, just a, a, a surplus of kind of YA fantasy kind of movies. And I, I feel like a lot of people probably would have watched the tra- trailers for these movies and, and been like, yeah, I already saw Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children or whatever. I, I, I'm good. You know, yeah. I don't know if, if everyone, does anyone disagree with that? Yeah. I think that sounds just right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Seth, so you said that you loved Colossal, right? So um, let's talk about Colossal. Um, okay. So in Colossal, it's uh, Anne Hathaway and she's in her... 20s, I think, and is living in New York City with her boyfriend and is just hasn't been really looking very hard for a job, we gather, and has just been kind of drinking and partying all the time. And her boyfriend's fed up with her and uh, kicks her out. And she goes back to her childhood home, which is empty, and uh, runs into a um, like a childhood friend of hers, this guy, uh, Oscar, who has inherited his dad's bar, and he hires her to work at the bar. And, uh, uh, and she sort of, you know, falls into the same pattern of staying up, staying out all night drinking and, uh, just sort of wandering home in the early hours of the morning across this playground near her house. And then it turns out that there's this giant monster that keeps appearing in Seoul, South Korea. And, uh, she starts to realize that this monster mimics her movements, uh, as she's walking across this playground drunk early in the morning. Um, so Seth, why did you, uh, why do you like this movie so much? Uh, I think it's really well shot and well acted and gorgeous, but my favorite part by far is how it is almost exactly half a romantic comedy about a, a poignant romantic comedy, you know, not a laugh a minute one, but about 
uh, not making it in the big city and going back to your hometown and discovering that the things you left behind and turned your back on really have value and can regenerate your soul and that there are people there who you never knew you were looking for your whole life. And then uh, it keeps going. Uh, it, it, it does everything a romantic comedy does, but in a way that reveals how creepy um, a lot of these rom-com traits are, you know, like men who'll suddenly do anything for you um, and want to be a part of your life and bring you televisions and stuff. Um, and the way in a rom-com, there's always this kind of breakdown of the relationship before the final get together. Uh, and they have to come back from that and forgive each other. Uh, Colossal does an amazing job of taking every single one of these rom-com trajectories and just steering them right into horror. <laughs> I loved, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, it was a total subversion of the whole romantic comedy trope, which I wasn't expecting. Halfway through, I thought I was going to hate this movie because I thought that's where it was going. And then it completely surprised me. And I was, I was very happy, but it's, it's a total subversion of, of the tropes. It's great. I think yeah. just by the end, when there are these sequences where, like, you know, they start with a rom-com setup, you know, he's come to your house to apologize, and they show how frightening it is to have this, just this man corner you in your living room and refuse to leave until he gets the answer he wants. Uh, like, it's not just subversive in a funny way. It's really frightening. Well, it's a movie that very much plugs into the Me Too moment, right? I mean, I feel like of the three movies, it's the one that has the most obvious hooks into the social moment. I really liked it, too. Um, and I think for exactly the reasons that you're talking about, I'm, I'm actually I'm teaching both science fiction and gender studies this semester, and I have every intention of doing Colossal in both classes. I think it'll be <laughs> <Yes>. seamless. <laughs> yeah, I think this movie is brilliant. And, and Seth, you recommended this to me a couple of years ago. Um, and so I watched it. And I was like, I think it's great. And the um, the director is he, he did a movie called Time Crimes, um, yeah. which is also really good, a much, much more low budget than this. But it, he yeah, he has a very like distinctive voice in this movie. And it's just unlike anything else I can think of. And, um, and again, it didn't do well. Uh, what the first, uh, I, I watched, I rewatched the trailer for it. And the first comment says, this looks really good and original. So I'm sure it will bomb. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, um, I don't know. Does anyone want to speculate on why this movie didn't do well, even though I think it's great. I never saw it uh, advertised. Like I, I do not remember seeing anything for this for this film. And uh, you know, it. I, I also think that for some reason, I, I don't think that they that marketing departments are good at looking at a movie and say, okay, who would love this movie? And instead, they often try to sell it as a different movie. I don't know yeah. why they do that because it never seems to be a good idea. You know, the whole bait and switch thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know, I would show this movie to people that have struggle with the, you know, when you, when you explain as a feminist, for instance, why the nice guy is often the worst guy, like why, why are nice guys, you know, why do nice guys finish last that kind of thing. And when you, you explain to them, well, actually nice guys can often be the worst. What do you mean by that? Okay, let's sit down and watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. So I, this is exactly what that is about, and you know, incredibly successful. But you know, even if I did see it advertised, I don't remember it. So there was nothing memorable about the trailer or whatever that would cause me to remember it. And and having watched it, I'm like, this is great. I could talk about this movie, you know, for hours. Well, well, yeah. I, you you should go watch the trailer because it's 100 percent deceptive. 
Uh, and it's just like, you know, of course. she's got a drinking problem. Now, she, now she's controlling a monster. What a screwball turn of events. Her friends think it's hilarious. And that's like the whole trailer. Like it, it gives no hint that the movie is dark or, you know, yeah. has any sort of point to it or anything. Or that the F word is associated with it. I think Sarah hit the nail on the head. It's a feminist science fiction film. How many of those have been successfully marketed <laughs> to mainstream audiences? And there's a, a nice, good, robust tradition of them out there, beginning with mm-hmm. Metropolis, right? But Well, beginning with Mary Shelley. Yes, right. Well, <laughs> well, well, well with stories, right? I yeah. was talking about films. But yeah, absolutely. All these, all of these nod back to Mary Shelley, right? Because they're all about sympathetic monsters. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But but I mean, do you think that if it were um, marketed truthfully, that it would be successful? Like, do you think a no. lot of people want to go see a like creepy nice guy, giant monster movie? I think I totally would have seen it in the theater if it had been marketed this way. And you know, if there's any YouTubers that that are listening out there that want to have a, an idea for a channel. Just honest, like the whole honest trailer thing. One of the reasons why that's interesting, right, is because of what we've been talking about. But if somebody, you know, honest trailers always goes a little too far in 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 the point of making fun. But if somebody actually made honest honest trailers and tried to make them sincerely reflect what is good about these films that have been you know unfairly maligned by the marketing departments of the world then yeah the right people would find those movies yeah i mean because because i totally agree with you that i was i thought this was a romantic comedy and you know and there's basically like three guys who you're set up to think are like she's maybe going to choose between right so there's tim her boyfriend who kicks her out uh, there's Oscar, who who seems the most obvious one, and then there's this guy Joel, who's sort of this handsome guy that she hooks up with, um, and each of them turn out by the end to be just completely uh, unacceptable. Um, you know, Joel is probably like is is basically decent, but is pretty dim witted and is just completely unwilling to stand up to his, you know, awful friend Oscar. And, and so, how yeah. many Joels do we know? We know so many Joels. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, he's a bro, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he's totally bro. <laughs> um, I guess I'll also note, I think it's kind of interesting that all of these movies were directed by not American directors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A Monster Calls and I Kill Giants. Oh, wait, no, sorry. A Monster Calls and Colossal both have were both, both Spanish directors, and then I Kill Giants is a Danish director. Um, so I, th- I just thought I'd throw that out there. Do you think that there is any, is that just a coincidence or do you think that, um, these sort of artistic giant, giant monster movies appeal to more of a kind of, um, magical realism sensibility or, uh, Lisa? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I definitely think that they do. And there's, you know, this is something that I will be talking about with my students on, on Wednesday. In fact, is right. The, there's a real difference between American and European speculative traditions and that, you know, since time, well, since Mary Shelley and her parents, uh, speculative fiction has been associated with the philosophical and, and with, with more with high art and, and high philosophy. And so I think it's no surprise that these metaphorical stories are coming from uh, directors who are coming out of a tradition where you use this kind of lexicon, this language, this grammar to, to explore issues of life and death and, hope and faith and, and all of the things that these movies do explore. I guess we'll also just note, it's kind of, there's kind of an interesting story behind the monster calls because the, there was a woman or a writer, Shaban Dowd, 
And she was diagnosed with cancer, and she came up with the idea basically for the the book. This is based on a novel, and pitched it to her publisher and and got a contract for it. And then she died before she had completed it. And so then Patrick Ness, um, I think, was sort of you know contacted by the publisher to to finish it. I, he may have known her. Uh, I'm not I'm not actually sure about that, but um, but so he finished it. Um, and um, God, that makes it even sadder. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but going back to my point about, you know, that at least I really got the sense that the people who made these movies thought that, you know, felt that they were important and, and wanted them out there in the world. For sure. Um, yeah. And, and that it's sort of maybe sad that they haven't, you know, that they didn't find a, a, a wider audience. Um, yeah. And then I Kill Giants is based on a a pretty well a uh, pretty well received graphic novel and the screenplay was written by the the writer of the of the graphic novel and again he said he got the idea cuz i think he said he has a daughter and just thinking about you know what would it be like to not be there for his daughter mm-hmm. um so and and i kill giants i mean i think it cost about wait i think i have it here but it cost about it had a budget of about 15 million and took in about 300,000 so yeah, Jesus. Wow. Uh so I don't know if we'll see any more metaphorical giant monster movies. I I think it'll be hard to get the funding, right? I mean, there's already that two tier system in Hollywood, right? There's the blockbuster that you put um I don't know how much into. And you've got to make that money back the first weekend. And then there are the, the smart science fiction films, right? Like her and Interstellar, where you're still putting in millions and millions of dollars, but you have a longer amount of time to make that money back like a month and you can include foreign sales, but this is like a whole third tier. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It feel like in some ways these movies die because they don't get any press or PR, but then they, they don't get it. None of us see it. And it's just a, a real vicious cycle. Yeah. Until they show up on the iTunes charts three years later and I come <laughs> across them. And, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, one thing I really like about Colossal is that it has some interesting intertextuality with Pacific Rim. Um, they kind of talk to each other in, a, I'm sure, an unintentional way. Um, but one of the things I really don't like about Pacific Rim, for all that it's a well-shot, um, gorgeous movie with a lot to say with its art design, um, is it has very, very weird politics. Guillermo del Toro is normally... His whole career has been about sympathy for the monster, and taking the monster's side. Uh, and Pacific Rim is this movie where, um, you know, people get in these big robots and fight the monsters, all of which are female. It's a plot point in the movie. Many of which have names like Slattern, or uh, I think that's the name of the ultimate monster they fight at the end, with these kind of very feminine uh, epithets. Um, and I just do, always do you want to just say, what, is, what does that mean, Seth, for people who I, might it, not know? I think it just means like a whore, or like a filthy woman. Um I can't remember all the the monster code names from Pacific Rim, but uh, a lot of them are are very gendered. Um, and one thing I like about Colossal is that Anne Hathaway turns into the the giant monster, the kaiju, and her weird uh, abusive would be boyfriend turns into the giant robot. Um, so it's almost like this reversal of the symbolic roles in Pacific Rim that I thought was cool. 
So that's the problem with seeing movies at the drive-in. I totally missed that about Pacific Rim. Um, and, and thank you for now ruining that movie. But um, <laughs> that's a great point. And, but it's really cool because I felt too that Colossal was somehow in dialogue with Pacific Rim. And that's really helpful to think about it that way. I mean, it's a critique nice. I would definitely level against Colossal is it is a very white movie. Um, you know, it, <laughs> well, it doesn't they have all a lot. Are. Yeah. Yes. That's really true. <laughs> They're really white. We got at least Zoe Saldana, but, uh, my my headcanon for Colossal is at the ending. So whenever she, um, you know, goes into the certain park in Colossal, the exact opposite point on planet Earth is the middle of Seoul, and that's where the monster appears. And I don't want to spoil the great ending twist, but she does end up in Seoul. And um, it was really good that the movie ends with her talking to a bartender there and uh, talking to this other woman, because at least you get some acknowledgement that, like, this other place matters too, and maybe this is where she's going to start her new life. Um, I, it's I, not just a backdrop. I think we are going to spoil the end because I, I guess the, the one thing that sort of threw me watching Colossal is that it wasn't – I mean, it, it sort of makes sense to me that if she goes to Seoul, that then the monster appears in New England, wherever she was. But it, it seems like weird to me that she would have necessarily thought that that was going to happen – or like figured that out. Like it, it, it seems like kind of a stretch to me. And, and when, when that happened, when I watched the movie the first time, I was kind of like, huh, wait, what? That's that, that happens. So I don't know if anyone else had that same reaction or not. Well, I feel like all of these films, there's this sense that you just totally accept that this is the reality that we've stepped into. So I don't, I don't feel like because, you know, because these are sort of psychological science fiction stories that are sort of borrowing these unreal elements I don't sit there thinking, well, how are they explaining that? How are they explaining? I mean, you know, these these kids stumbled onto a playground, you know, and were sort of hit by lightning. <laughs> and then it means that all of a sudden this playground has magical properties and that what they do in this playground affects a monster and a robot on the other side of the globe. I mean, you know, it's It sounds kind of absurd nuts. when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like it's totally successful in the fact that, you know, in the sense that, that you know, you, you, if you start out with a crazy enough theory, you almost don't nearly need to explain it, especially if the other plot points are carrying the weight of the movie. If, if it's trying to pretend to be science-y, that's a problem. And I, I, I so much prefer when things go unexplained than when things are badly explained. Yeah, I, I just feel like maybe it could have used maybe just like one bit of foreshadowing or, or something. Um, but, but I don't then know. It would have. Yeah, but then it would have become Star Trek, right? Because someone would have had this realization. Because <laughs> it feels like some ways, like it's a Star Trek insight. Wait, if things are working this way, we could flip it around, right? And I just, I feel like it would lose some of the dreaminess of the movie if someone had that realization. And and I usually am down with the explanations or the foreshadowing, but I don't know. I didn't need it this time for some reason. It just, it worked in the kind of dreamy logic of the story to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a very kind of magical logic where if you want to, you know, reverse your position with respect to someone, reverse your power, of course, you have to reverse your physical place on the earth, too. Yeah, I guess I'll just say, I mean, I don't think we've talked explicitly about what does the me what is the metaphor here in Colossal. I mean, it seemed to me that the metaphor was that um, that Anne Hathaway has been, you know, sort of having alcohol related problems and that this has been destructive, but she has sort of been uh, oblivious to the, 
to the harm that she's causing in sort of the same way that she's oblivious to the harm that she's causing by having this monster destroy a city halfway around the world, not realizing that it's mirroring her actions. I think it was, uh, I think that the metaphor was just, you know, her confronting sort of this lifelong abuser, you know, that this kid, when, you know, you realize when she threw the flashbacks or whatever, that this kid has been mean to her since they were children. And she didn't really grasp that. Uh, when they were kids and, you know, that this guy actually had some negative effect on her that, you know, carried through her, her adulthood um, and, you know, kind of possibly contributed to some poor life choices. And so in part, I think, you know, her choosing between the, the different men and so on and, and especially rejecting him, um, you know, even though it was never like about him trying to get with her explicitly or anything like that, it was like her rejecting his way of thinking and his way of being. I agree with you, but I think it is about toxic masculinity, right? I mean, he's so angry at her for being better than him. Like that's what triggers everything, right? That's the, the root of the drinking. The root of their relationship is his fury that she's better than him. Yeah. Right. And if, I mean, I don't know. It feels like that's pretty easy to start extrapolating out to a larger culture that is very much in a moment where we're thinking about men and women's uh, relations to one another and, and these sort of powered relationships. But I mean, I think that's what the movie becomes about. But I, I didn't have the sense that her drinking problem was because he had mistreated oh, her. Because I, I mean, they I thought she'd only known him in elementary school. Like... Well, childhood trauma is pretty yeah. intense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you remember I mean, this stuff forever. I it mean, was, there's a reason why you don't you don't forget this stuff that happens to you. You, yeah. you have these sad stories that you tell your partner. Oh, this is what happened to me when I was a kid. You know, and like yeah. that, everybody has those collection of stories. But I mean, it, it, she doesn't even remember. Like, like it comes back to her, right? This this incident where he stomped on her. Well, all of us trauma. do. But we all do things without understanding what our real intents are. I, th- I thought a hundred years of Freud have, and, and other psychologists have taught us that, right? I mean, yeah. I thought that was all just a reaction, like I mean, the way we bury the trauma that's done to us. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. when it's by someone who supposedly is a good man who loves you. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Seth, what do you think about this? I think it's... Mm. Knowing people, it might be too easy to attribute all of Anne Hathaway um, as Gloria's problems to this one event. Um, Because, like, I do think there is something really powerful about how each of them react differently to, um, you know, their ability to control a giant creature in soul. Like, she eventually realizes that she is going to do harm through her carelessness and that she needs to stop. Um, And she does this by, like, firmly not only drawing boundaries around herself and taking responsibility for her own actions, but also um, heroically, you know, pushing this guy out of her life. Um, you know, it's not just uh, brave of her to, t- to tell him no and um, call me a cynic, but like, I think a necessary step to getting away from such an abusive person might include moving to the opposite side of the world. Uh, I think that's another reason her going to Seoul is part of the solution to beating him. Uh, just understanding that there is no way to coexist with him. There's no way right. to give him any ground. Yeah. Yeah. So I, sure. I don't know if all her alcoholism and everything comes from from him as a child, but I'm sure there's a pattern of her 
for the purposes could, of the movie, it's hard not to put those dots together, right? I mean, yeah. those are the pieces I'm given, so. Hmm. Yeah, and that doesn't mean we have to necessarily take it literally and say, right, well, X led to Y. It's oh, just 100%, that, right. You know, those things are there for a reason. Like We were, we were yeah. given those flashbacks for a reason, and, yeah. and these two are intimately connected for reasons. Yeah. So narratively, it makes perfect sense. Well, that's an interesting point, Seth, that this is maybe part of a pattern of behavior. And what, what, did, what do you think about um, Tim, her boyfriend, versus Oscar? Are they the same sort of toxic personality type, or are they distinct, do you think? You should ask somebody else, just because I haven't seen this movie for a couple of years. <laughs> so I don't remember Tim well enough. Um, Sarah? I mean, well, I'll just, like, Tim is very like sort of snide and condescending. Yeah. I mean, um, he's kind of the opposite of the other guy, right? Like he, he doesn't have, he's not an alcoholic. He's very together. He has his life sorted. Um, but he's not being empathetic with her. He's not helping her through this. He's, he's just kind of, you know, showing her what he probably imagines is tough love and booting her out, which is great if it was, uh, you know, and we have, we don't see enough of her history. Like we do get the sense that they've argued about it before and that he tried. And in, in many ways, Tim is a somewhat sympathetic character. Like you're, you kind of are like, well, yeah, I would probably kick her out too. But maybe if it's somebody who you love, you sit them down and you say, okay, you know what? You and I are going to work through this. We're going to see a counselor. We're going to, you know, talk about this. We're going to, we're going to get it sorted. And for him to just cut her off and kick her out when you you know you don't get the sense that that they've really done enough to to lead up to that point but but i think that you know that he exists to kind of say that there are different ways um for men to not be supportive and not be thoughtful and not be what you need in your life to to get through these things um and certainly you know part of that is obviously that you know and i love this the sort of reversal of the trope that that any man in those situations would be the thing that saves her you know she's right. the one that has to figure out her way out of all of this yeah right i mean we, do, do you do you see lisa um tim falling into the same pattern as oscar or do you see them as i different? i I agree with Sarah. I think that Tim and Oscar and Joel and Garth, all four of them, they're they're different variations of 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 men who are are very different from each other and have very different motives, but are ultimately bound together by not being particularly supportive of at least this particular woman, right? Yeah. Um, and that there are very much like now that Frankenstein has come up, I can't help but think about it. they're all very Victor Frankenstein. They're all very involved with themselves, right? Yeah. Um, and there's no room for anything else. And that guess what turns the woman into a monster but then yeah but she figures it out herself and i love that i love when she writes i'm sorry in the sand that as a monster she at first has no voice but then she gains this voice through writing and then she does start to draw boundaries like seth was saying and to change the story i i just went back lisa and i listened to the the interview you did on on geeks got to the galaxy earlier and you you said that um when they interviewed you for that james cameron story of science fiction that uh, you had talked about something about monstrous femininity or something. Yeah, yeah, um, we talked about monsters and right. Does that does any of that inform colossal? Oh yeah, for sure, right? Um, and we have this tradition of 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 monstrous women going all the way back to Metropolis, and I, the evil Maria is not large, although she feels larger than life at some points. Um, 
and and certainly right this is a movie that that starts out right making that connection between this woman with this sort of monstrous life and the monster right so yeah we have monstrous femininity but then the question is what makes monstrous femininity and it seems to be toxic masculinity this could take us back to attack of the 50-foot woman as well if we wanted to right there's this history of stories about women who are larger than life isn't there a song called girls like giants in fact like that's really popular right now it's like a youtube song well i guess how did you feel about at the end she basically kills oscar yeah did you feel that that was um like a like 100% happy ending or, or no, no, it's a monstrous moment, right? She's a woman who's been pushed to monstrous behavior. Um, but at oh, the I same totally time, disagree. well, okay, cool. I was going to just say though, at the same time, we don't allow women to act out in those ways. And so I'm not sure if it is monstrous or necessary at the end, but um, go ahead. Why do you disagree? I want to hear. I just think from like any ethical perspective, he's he's got the ability to do lethal harm. He's shown he's willing to use it. He has probably already killed people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's oh definitely it's yeah, basically an armed standoff yeah. situation. I think for sure she had every right to kill him. I for hope sure. a court would not convict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying, right? But do you meet power with power? I mean, like this is a big problem in feminism, right? The master's tools don't dismantle the master's house, and I I don't know if you meet violence with violence. I agree with you. Like personally, I'm happy she throws him across, you know, time and space, but. I, I, I don't know. I will say that there is something symbolic about the fact that she throws him away. It's like the ultimate boundary yeah. setting. It's not like she crushes mm-hmm. him or eats him. Yeah, um, that's true. That's she true. Just I thought the manner in which she yeah. gets rid of him was really good because you're waiting in that moment, right? And they do sort of, they they pause on that moment because you know that she's got to do something. And you're there's a moment where she's like, oh my God, is she going to eat him? Is she going to look what she going to do? Yeah. And the fact that she just flings him away from her is I think really powerful and they wouldn't, they would never tie it to her anyway. I mean, you know, <laughs> like they don't show the guy's body, but you presume that the guy ended up, you know, getting impaled by a telephone pole or something in the middle of, of new England. And so, you know, it's like one of those freak accidents, like how did this happen? But yeah, I, I think it was great metaphorically that if she did resort to violence, that it wasn't a particularly masculine way of, putting him down well and it's also it's great right because that's what what you're supposed to do with a bad man is throw him out of the house well i I can definitely buy seth's argument that um you know that he's a mass murderer and this is the only means at her disposal to prevent him from killing again Um, i can totally buy that but even granting that it seems like there's two possible interpretations that this is either supposed to be read as just a, a moment of total empowerment for her and a happy ending or that this is sort of like she had to give up something of of her own goodness and it had to be done, but we still can feel the loss of, mm-hmm. you know, that she had to become this monster in order to address the right. situation. I think it was both. You know, I mean, in yeah. the end, she when she realized what probably happened to him, she started crying. Like, but she also, I think, understood that she kind of had to do what she did. Yeah. Have any of you, Um, this movie came out, what, two years ago? Right. Yeah. Three maybe. Okay. But in another weird moment of convergence, just as we're talking about it, I'm thinking about there was a novel that came out a couple of years ago by Naomi Alderman called The Power. And it's all about like women suddenly evolve in a way that allows us to have more physical strength than men. And and what happens is just violence from the past is met with more violence. And I feel like this movie sort of is exploring that same 
set of issues, right? What happens when, when women who are abused suddenly gain immense power? Like, how will they act? Right? Will they act different than the people around them or not? And I think this movie really doesn't give you an easy answer to it. Yeah, I wish I had read that book, but I, I haven't, so I, I can't really yeah. comment on it. But oh, yeah. one, everyone one of- should read it. It's a weird book. <laughs> disturbing. It's disturbing. And I think Colossal is disturbing. And it's not a bad thing to be disturbed, right? We should talk about tough choices. Yeah. I guess one other thing I wanted to bring up about Colossal is I, I just noticed so there's a, a well known film critic, Rex Reed. And he gave the movie zero out of four stars and said it was incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was Typical. pretty straightforward. But do, does anyone <laughs> understand why someone would just be completely baffled by this movie? I can understand why a man would be completely baffled. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I I agree. I think that it is incomprehensible to some men. It's also right, maybe incomprehensible to people who don't do science fiction and fantasy. You know, I think that in the speculative genres, we deal with metaphor a little bit differently than than in mainstream literature. Yeah. And we're more comfortable with the metaphorical also sometimes being the literal. Like if someone says the world, her world exploded, we know that maybe it literally exploded. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think sometimes non-science fiction people I find, especially I find this when I teach, like they come to these texts and they just don't know what to do with like, is the giant real? Is it a metaphor? Is it something in between? And it's distressing for some people to not have those reading protocols in place. Yeah. It's like when Anthony Lane reviews Star Trek. I, I find it <laughs> hilarious. Whenever a new Star Trek film comes out to read, I, I, I basically hate read Anthony Lane <laughs> whenever a new Star, Star Trek film comes out because he's so unequipped to review Star Trek as Star Trek and so unwilling to review Star Trek as Star Trek. And so he's just like treating it like it's 50 shades of gray. And it's hilarious to <laughs> watch him grapple with something that is so out of his wheelhouse. Uh, Seth, what do you think? I think maybe it has something to do with how it starts being one kind of movie and becomes another. I think maybe if you were uh, really full of expectation about where it was going to go, um, you would feel lost when it sort of swerved off the map that you were expecting. The Does it, though? Or is it just the trailer that makes you think it does? No, I, I mean, I is. hadn't seen the trailer, and I, it, it totally threw me for a loop. I mean, the direction that the story went. I mean. Mm-hmm. I think if you're not ready for that shift to the fantastic and you're not a speculative genre person, I think that would be really hard to follow that. Uh, I'm looking at my notes here. There's one other thing I, I definitely wanted to bring up. So in A Monster Calls, there's this bully, um, Harry, I think. Um, and it definitely seemed pretty gay. Um, am I, does everyone agree that there was, that we were meant to read that as a gay subplot or in in a gay context? It seemed like there was some homophobia driving that relationship. Yeah. That was the, but you don't, you don't think that we're meant to read Harry himself as closeted or. I think you could. Well, even if even if we're not supposed to directly interpret that as as homosexuality, I think they were definitely saying that that Harry had some issues of his own that he was unable to sort out and that his way of dealing with that was through violence. You know, you get these glimpses where they showed us that he was hurting, too. 
and you don't know by what, and they kind of kept, you know, that curtain drawn. Um, but I definitely think that he had some issues in there and whether that was explicitly supposed to be homosexuality or not, I don't know, but you definitely got the sense that, you know, I was almost expecting in that movie for something to happen between them where, you know, they had a talk and, you know, they, they bonded over something, um, and, and, you know, that's not what ended up happening, but I, yeah, I mean, definitely there was un- undercurrents there. They were trying to explore. I agree. I thought something was going to happen with the two of them because Harry kept giving Connor these looks and I couldn't figure out the looks, but you know what, if it's, if it has to do with some sort of a repressed almost gay subplot that actually helps make sense of like the strange economy of the gays that was going around completely. Um, just the way that Harry kept giving him these looks. Yeah, well, well, and there's a line where he says something like, O'Malley and I have an understanding that I'm the only one who gets to touch him or something like that. And then um, <laughs> in, in the first scene where he's bullying him, he's, he's, he's basically like, I, I bully you because you have such an awesome imagination, um, which, which seems like, uh, like strange to me. But, you know, that he's, it's, it's sort of like weirdly complimentary almost. Um, well, it's as though he's jealous of him. You know, you got, you just, it felt like in some way that, you know, Harry was jealous of Connor on some level, and you're not sure why. I mean, maybe it's the imagination, but I think kids getting bullied for having imagination doesn't strike me as particularly surprising at all. Yeah. I, I thought that seemed... No, but it was the fact that he would say it, you know, that he would put it like that struck me as yeah. un- noteworthy. Or... No, Seth? Maybe it's really like a lot of depth for a kid to have, to recognize that about himself. I don't know. Yeah, um, I just think there was a lot going on in that relationship, and I haven't really come to any firm conclusions about it, but it's uh, rich for interpretation. It did. I mean, like, I think, like Sarah said, it, it's, I was expecting there to be at least one more scene between them where something, some sort of understanding would come out of it. And it's, it struck me as a little odd that, you know, he, he, Connor sort of, punches him a bunch of times and sends him to the hospital and we never see that character again. Um, I, I, I don't know if they felt like I, I, I can only speculate, but I, I wonder if maybe there was more to that relationship in the novel. I haven't read the novel, but if there was more to that in the novel or more to that in the original screenplay and they just felt like for whatever reason, they didn't want to put it in well, the movie. In all of these films, the way of dealing with, with bullies was explicitly by visiting the same pain upon them, right? By 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 being violent with them right. in in return for what they were doing to you, and that that was the only thing that bullies respect. In one of them, they explicitly said that. Yeah. You know, I think it was in I Kill Giants. Barbara yeah. was explaining it to Sophia, and and by the way, Sophia was a wonderful <laughs> character. I love <laughs> Sophia. Uh, so yeah, I feel like you know that's one of the things that that we have heard constantly from movies like this about bullies, and I don't know whether or not it's true, but it certainly feels you know victorious for the audience. Wow, you know it's really interesting as you put it this way, right? Because all of these movies are ultimately about bullying, and in a, in when in a moment of great incivility. <laughs> Um, especially, you know, on social media and on any media and online, it's interesting that each of these movies really sort of meditates on the danger of giving back what you get yeah. and, and the need to change that script. Well, that's a hopeful way to think about them then, right? That, that we yeah. can meet these gigantic, seemingly intractable forces of 
of harm and hurt and, and maybe do something different. Well, that's sort of, yeah. Or not, depending. Well, what sort of, you know, there's this famous Nietzsche line where he says, you know, those who fight monsters should take care of that in the process. They don't become monsters. Right. And yeah, it, it strikes me that in, in movies that are so much about, you know, monsters as metaphor and, and how you can become a monster if you're not careful and stuff that more analysis isn't given to the the ethics or the the wisdom of beating the physically beating the shit out of your bully. You know, it seems right. like that deserves more, you know, more <laughs> scrutiny, that, that idea. Well, we may, we might not have solved that problem. I mean, we, you know, we, it's one of those things where it's like, what do you, it's one of the great questions of that is dealt with, you know, the, the Star Trek discovery season one dealt with, you know, if, if, if you're, if your bully is intent on hurting mm-hmm. you and for no reason doesn't seem to be any way to fix it, you know, do you just visit upon them what they're doing right. to you as a show of strength? And is that, you know, is that at all ethical? And I think the point is to grapple with the question, yeah. but it would be better if we had better answers than, you know, just giving them, you know, an eye for an eye. Well, and isn't that maybe that's part of why these movies bombed is because they do grapple with these questions and, I don't think they come to clear answers, right? They sort of leave it to you in good science fictional fashion to continue to have those discussions afterward amongst yourself instead. And a lot of people don't go to movies to have to have hard conversations afterwards. All right. So we are pretty much out of time. So I think we're going to need to wrap this up. So how, let's get some final uh, final thoughts on these three. How do you feel about having watched and discussed these three movies, I Kill Giants, Monster Calls, and Colossal? So, uh, Lisa, final thought. So I appreciate that we talked about them all. And, and again, I'm really interested that there's this subgenre that seems to be out and about in the world right now that is maybe about bullying, maybe about dealing with emotions that are larger than life but often neglected. Uh, but when it comes down to it, Personally, I still like them better in the science fictional mode. So something like Colossal, as opposed to the more fantastic mode of I Kill Giants and a Monster Calls. But um, but it's there. And and I'm, I'd be curious to see more of them. I wonder if someone could make a movie that we would all really like in this mode. Seth, final thought. I mean, I love Colossal. I think it's yeah. one of my favorite movies. Um, I don't think it's particularly more science fictional than the other two, just aimed at an older audience. And uh, I liked both A Monster Calls and I Killed Giants. I found both of them a little, um, like, neat. They, you know, they had their themes, and they set them up, and they delivered on them, and I found them a little frustratingly tidy. But uh, I think that's probably something the kind of person who prefers Colossal would would say. Um, and I think they make a great, like, double feature. They're basically the same movie, but executed in very different ways. Um, and I enjoyed watching both of them. I'm, I'm glad we did this panel so that I could see them. Yeah, but they're they're sort of structurally predictable in a way that Colossal isn't. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, final thought? I think they're all worth watching. I think that I Kill Giants and A Monster Calls should be, you know, sort of required watching for families who are going through uh, you know, somebody getting cancer, um, to, you know, sit down with your kit and watch these and talk about them. 
Um, I think that Colossal should absolutely, somebody should make an honest trailer for the <laughs> fact that it's feminist science fiction and it's great. It's really, there's a lot to pick apart in that film and it's uh, very, very underrated and, and uh, you know, under the radar. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone definitely watch Colossal and definitely watch I Kill Giants and Monster Calls if you feel like crying yeah. while watching yeah. Giants. <laughs> Um, all right, and so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Sarah Lynn Mishner, Seth Dickinson, and Lisa Yazik. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's always fun. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Sarah Lynn Mishner, Seth Dickinson, and Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to John Jers, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.